every time I made a film, my family member would be taken into questioning. My brother was the closest person to me, and I think the government by now have found out that he was questioned three days in a row. Each day was five to six hours, to the point that they said if I were ever going to make another film again about China, they would arrest my family. That's the voice of Nanfu Wang, an exceptional American filmmaker from China, and the winner of a 2022 DuPont Columbia Award for her documentary, In the Same Breath. That's right. Like Nanfu's other documentaries, In the Same Breath adopts a personal lens. Nanfu herself narrates the early days of the COVID-19 outbreak in Wuhan, near where her family actually lives, and where she found herself in the first few weeks of 2020. She takes viewers through the Chinese government's cover-up of the mysterious virus spreading through Wuhan as early as November 2019, and the silencing and punishment of Chinese doctors who spoke up about the epidemic early on. As the film documents, the government then launched a propaganda campaign. They prosecuted whistleblowers until their public health system was on the verge of collapse. The footage Nanfu and her team managed to capture inside Wuhan's hospitals and funeral sites showed the real fallout of that collapse, undeniable and overwhelming grief and human catastrophe. They took incredible risks. Nanfu and her team produced a true piece of public service journalism, poignantly revealing the dangers of an authoritarian regime in times of crisis. And that is what we are talking about today on this episode of On Assignment. Welcome to a new episode of On Assignment from Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright, Executive Director of the Professional Prizes Program. I'm joined here today, as always, by my friend and colleague, DuPont Director Lisa R. Cohen, who's very busy these days, right, Lisa? Yes, frantic, you might even say, but I've got it all under control. I know I don't need to remind you, but I'll remind our audience once again that today, when this episode is dropping, July 1, is the final day to submit to the 2023 DuPont Columbia Awards. Yes, indeed. It's a big day for us here at the DuPonts. We'll be processing all of your submissions in the coming weeks. In the meanwhile, today, if you have any questions or you're having any issues submitting your reporting to DuPont.org, please send us an email and let us know. You can reach us at DuPontAwards at Columbia.edu. So, Abby, it's, it's becoming a bit of a routine, but it, it never gets old. What could that be, Lisa? Telling the journalists that they want a DuPont baton over Zoom, of course. Ah, yes. I love starting our episodes with this exciting piece of news. And, you know, even for a filmmaker like Nanfu, who's made two other brilliant award-winning documentaries about the Chinese government, the surprise is always a real delight. Absolutely. So here it is, our virtually taped interview with Nanfu Wang. Thank you for joining us. For people who haven't seen the film, can you give us a thumbnail sketch or a short idea of what it's about? In the Same Breath is about how governments shaped information during the pandemic. And it's also looking at how lack of transparency and disinformation, misinformation, propaganda, and censorship played roles during the pandemic and led us to where we are today. That's great. That's great. And it was very, very highly regarded by the jury, 
One judge said, Wang's film is an eloquent and incisive look at the handling of the COVID pandemic and perhaps worse, the pandemic of authoritarian behavior and tendencies. It's well-reported, fact-based, and devastating. This was a hard film to watch. I appreciate her honesty about her own blind faith. And to that extent, we actually have some news today, which is that In the Same Breath has won a 2022 oh. DuPont Columbia. <laughs> I didn't expect you were going to tell me this. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is a, such a huge surprise. Thank you so much. <laughs> Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Each year in January, I return to my home in China. This was the last moment I can remember when life still felt normal. Then, in an instant, everything changed. I think we should just go back and start uh, at the beginning to, to talk a little bit about how you came to do this film in the first place. What got this whole thing going? My family was in China living about two or 300 miles away from Wuhan and my son was in China. I was visiting my family in January, 2020. When I was there, everything seemed normal. And I made a plan. I left my two-year-old son with my mom and I came here. Me and my husband, we were going to be on uh, like a work vacation. We were going to be both at Sundance. Uh, he was going to meet me in Utah. I landed in San Francisco on January 23rd. And when I landed and checked my phone, that was when Wuhan went into lockdown. So the very beginning was trying to understand if they were safe and if the virus was contained and how much information I could find and uh, heard from my relatives so that you know, they received orders to cover up the cases that are positive cases in my city. And it was during those few days, trying to find out the information, what the government knew. Then I realized how quickly they were censoring information. We were reaching out to people in Wuhan, trying to find what exactly was going on. And on the one hand, we have what the government said. And on the one hand, we have what the people really were experiencing. Hospitals were overwhelmed. The official news report said that everything was under control. But people were dying on the street. All the information was gone, censored. And that was when I started realizing I needed to um, save this videos, pictures, documents before they were completely disappearing. Within the week or so, I was, we were doing the archiving, not with an idea of like doing a documentary in mind at the time, mostly just like this is important, um, cannot let this disappear. And then it was the night that I saw 1500 people posted their information on the internet crying for help. That was the, the moment that I decided to do a documentary. So Despite the large scope of the subject matter in the film, it's very intimate, partly because it focuses on you and your perspective and your experiences before and after the pandemic. Why did you choose that kind of storytelling? I knew that this is how I wanted to make this film. 
from the very beginning in January. And part of the reason was because the whole genesis of this film was personal. Um, from that point on, I knew the story would be told from my first person point of view, but I also knew that it's very interesting what I was witnessing, which was how the history was being written by the Chinese government. Within a few months from the virus went out of control to China was celebrated for its quick, quote unquote, quick response towards the virus. If people are observing in a way from a distance, it's very easy to be deceived by all the uh, official narrative. And along with your perspective and analysis that you bring to these films, uh, not just this one, but your past films as well, you narrate them. By definition, you have to narrate them in order to do that. And I'm struck by that because, you know, here at the journalism school, the doc students yeah. all want to do non-narrated films. Even in the documentary world at large, that's, you know, that's how to do real documentary. Um, and I come from a news background, a long form news background, where their narration was a very helpful tool. And I want to know whether you think about that at all. Do you think about non-narrated versus narrated? Yes, um, but not like in a way to, to think about like which is better, which is uh, worse, because there are films that don't need narration, that the narration is not justified. There are a lot of films that have narration, uh, which are great. And then I also think that a lot of the times the verite observation is more deceptive. The choices are put behind what to present and how to present is equally subjective as if a film is done by a first person narrative. I realized by including myself is presenting a fuller truth. If I had omitted myself, then it is actually an act of censorship. If the government is tracking down or targeting every activist, that's part of the story, but the full story is they go after the storyteller as well. If that part is omitted, the story is not complete and is a, a partial truth. So in the film and in really all of your films, you have reported on the failings or the shortcomings of the government in China. In this film specifically about information with regards to the virus, in the film, you also mentioned the disappearance of an independent reporter, Chen Kushi, as well as other cases of journalists who've been in prison for their work at this time. Were you yourself afraid of retribution, either against yourself or family members that you still have in China? It, it would be a lie if I say that I wasn't nervous or I wasn't afraid at all. I felt it was a gamble and it was also a huge risk to take. And definitely, you know, for all the people who were involved, in China, the government tend to intimidate and harass people. And it's almost like a gesture um, as a threat. Every time I made a film, my family member would be taken into questioning. So after this film was the worst, my closest family members, my mom, my brother, and my uncle, they all were questioned um, by their local police. My brother was the closest person to me. And I think the government by now have found out that the treatment to him was the worst. Uh, he was questioned three days in a row. Each day was five to six hours to the point that they said, if I were ever going to make another film again about China, they would arrest my family. So this time felt the worst. I don't know 
if I would be able to make another film in China, in the same breath was done completely remotely. But even that, we had to be really careful to not reveal that I was the one who is making a film. It felt more precious. I have a lot to say, and I wanted to be able to say the things to explore the themes that has to do with the corruption of the government, the lack of transparency, the lack of freedom of speech, uh, all of the things. You worked with several local camera people on the ground in Wuhan, directing them from the U.S. Talk about the nuts and bolts of that process. It's very complicated because we have worked with um, more than 10 cinematographers in Wuhan and more than 10 yeah. in the U.S. It's the largest team that I've ever worked with on one project. So we realized there are so many storylines that were happening and we need people to cover it. And we found one cinematographer to film in, inside the hospital. We realized, but wait, the funeral home, something is happening there too. The ambulance, the activists threat. And finding the cinematographers in Wuhan was a challenge. It took a lot of time and really cautious um, planning. We couldn't publicize a, an ad or a job post looking for people publicly. So it's all through a person whom we trusted and then only spread the words among the people they trusted. More than half of the cinematographers I didn't know before, so they're all strangers. And so in addition to building the relationship with the interviewees, I had to build the relationship and trust with the cinematographer. We would get on the phone and um, it's a very tricky conversation, the first one, because I need to gauge whether I could trust this stranger who would not, uh, after talking on the phone, go to the government to report, hey, I just learned this filmmaker is doing this. So it's very delicate that I would have a conversation, gauge where this person stands politically and how this person feels about the situation. And of course, I always start with the intentions. I wanted to make this film because I wanted to document history. And that's not to say I wanted to say, to say the Chinese government is, did wrong or, but it is document the history as it is happening. And you are the witness. You, you have the access, you have the ability to witness at this moment. Have any of them had repercussions? No, nobody has contacted them. So you toggle back and forth between that kind of footage and also social media postings on the ground and propaganda. How did your team access the, all this official news footage and the propaganda? Like, how did you get your hands on that stuff? We quickly realized um, there is a huge discrepancy between what the government said um, was going on versus what in reality was going on. So we knew that in order to find out what did the government know and when did they know, the only way is to see their own speeches, to see their own news uh, segments. And when we start looking from November 2019, when you look back and see what they said and whether it's about punishing people spreading rumor about pneumonia or what is it saying that the, there is no such virus or the virus is not contagious, every step of the way, at the time, they must have thought it was a good PR strategy to do it. But when you put them all together, then it became contradictory, it became revealing. They could say, 
something in one moment and then the next thing is uh, completely contradictory to it. So that became a strategy or a research device to create a database of all the archival, all the news, what the government said. We have three researchers and then three archival people who were combing through every single piece, printed um, TV, and then have created a very detailed timeline. So all the threats that you're seeing in the film came from a huge database. Right. So one subject explicitly says on camera, we don't have freedom of speech. And you know, uh, we see a lot of people who are afraid to speak on camera. The camera has to be turned off before they tell the camera person something. Um, under these kinds of circumstances, how do you get anyone to talk to you on camera? And how do you think about their safety and the repercussions? It's a good question because people who are willing to talk uh, fewer and fewer now, um, anybody, activists, reporters, citizen journalists, regular citizens, so the ones who, who would be willing to talk and go on camera is really the minority of the minority. To your question, how do I find them? Finding them is actually really easy. If they are brave enough to speak, they usually have spoken aloud on Twitter. They have spoken to foreign media like BBC or Western media. They wanted their voice to be heard and they have already received repercussion. So those people are out there and are the quote unquote dissidents. You can look at it like who is outspoken on social media and who has been already um, to some extent on the watch list. And in the film, you found a whistleblower at the funeral home, or you know, you found someone to talk to you when you were trying to tally up the official numbers of fatalities in Wuhan. When you're dealing with an authoritarian government without freedom of speech, how do you go about collecting data when official numbers can't be trusted? How, how did you approach that? It's impossible. We don't have the real statistics of um, the death, um, COVID death in Wuhan or in China, in Hubei province. And that is true in the past too about SARS uh, death number um, or an earthquake, like that, those numbers were not true and we knew it. I mentioned that finding people who praise the government is easy, finding people who are critical of the government is easy. What is the most difficult is convincing people who are ordinary citizens who have information to come out and speak up. And those took the most effort and that's really difficult. And the funeral worker took us a long time to find, first of all, to, to even have access to uh, have the off the record conversation. In China, um, the funeral homes are state-owned. In Wuhan, there are eight state-owned funeral homes, completely handled by the government. So the numbers are top secret and highly surveilled. So this one funeral worker um, decided to talk and he can only tell us an estimate based on what he had dealt with, what he had seen. The numbers that he estimated was 20 to 30,000. The official death toll in Wuhan is 3,000. So we want to talk a little bit now about your the American part of the film. Uh, about halfway through, we leave China and we come over to the United States and we find some parallels there. Freedom, freedom. 
As I watched the protesters in America, I thought about Payan. He said that tens of thousands died in China because there was no freedom of speech. I wondered what he would think if he could see what was happening here. I feel like uh, the American government is trying to be more like China, which is a communist country. And I feel like being free is what separates us from other countries. Nine years ago, when I moved to the US, it was the idea of freedom that attracted me. But is this what freedom looks like? Can you talk about the parallels? And at what point in your reporting did you realize that you were going to be showing these, this two-track storyline? In March, when the outbreak reached the US, New York, I was shocked. And I was more shocked than the outbreak in Wuhan. All the way up until that point, I never have imagined that an outbreak like this would unfold in the US or would be handled in this way. I remember when I came back from China in January and my family and I would say, thank God we're back, we're safe. And of course, by March, I was proven wrong, so wrong that made me question my own preconceived notions and biases, wondering, was there something that I didn't know about America? Was it like always I had a fantasized version of the democratic country? So from that moment on, the film was driven by a lot of those questions that I felt I didn't have answers for. The question about if China's um, problem existed uh, mostly in, you know, because of the lack of freedom of speech, lack of transparency, and America, which has freedom of speech, why did some of the similar issues of the misinformation, disinformation spread out here even more quickly? So from that moment in May, when I saw the protests happening, and really think about what freedom of speech mean and what are the limitations. I don't think that I have like very clear answers even now, but I realized that freedom of speech doesn't necessarily mean that there is a closer access to truth or people have free access to information. It just means that information, misinformation, disinformation spread it freely too. Yeah. Right. And how fascinating for you being from China originally, kind of at the vortex of all of this between China and the US, and then the disinformation about China and the origin of the virus from your perspective too, knowing all that you know, that must have been fascinating. The same thing happened in China. People have a lot of conspiracy theory in China. People believe and firmly believe that the virus started in the US and it was manufactured wow. by the U.S. military. You end the film by saying that you worry that something more frightening than a pandemic may be coming. Exactly what trends or phenomena do you see that lead you to say that authoritarianism is really what we should be as concerned with, if not more so? Um, I think... A few things. One of them is how China has convinced the world. I think most people would say 
that was effective. Look, they did a good job and buying in the narrative. And that's dangerous to me because I think in a crisis like this, sometimes authoritarian um, measures are more efficient, mandate people to go to get vaccine. But it doesn't mean that we need to praise or alarm <laughs> from authoritarian regime. And I think if we emerge from this pandemic thinking that the Chinese version was great, that's my fear too. Wow, this is, it's an amazing, astonishing film. And uh, perhaps it's, it's a film that you were made to make. You know, it's really, it's really so tailored to your specific circumstances and your gifts. And uh, thank you very much for making it. Thank you. And I have to say, you know, living through it in the U.S., it was really so fascinating to watch it unfold over there. It really enhanced my whole perspective of the experience. Congratulations. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Thanks again to Nan Fu for talking with us about her documentary. It's truly such a brave demonstration of journalism at its finest, work that sheds light on what the powers that be try to hide and serves as a witness for those who cannot speak up. Absolutely. Meanwhile, if you have done some significant <laughs> journalistic work like that this year, whether in audio or video, this is the sign you've been waiting for. Send it our way now. Operators are standing by. No, we, yeah, we never <laughs> will not get tired of pounding it into you that this is the last opportunity you have to submit at DuPont.org. And while you're online, you can actually check out Nanfu's documentary in the same breath, which is streaming on Hulu or HBO. Well, that wraps up this episode of On Assignment Season 15, produced by Emily Russell and sound engineered by Carlos Del Rosario. We'll be back next time with another deep dive into how journalism's best do their job. Until then. Until then.